Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at uh, Courtright, and it's uh, great to be with you this morning. If you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a leadership series. So we're doing a number of weeks exploring um, leadership and what that means for us as a community and a congregation. Um, so would you pray with me as we begin our time together this morning? God, I echo the words that we've just sung. Come, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. We know that you know uh, the words that we need to hear this morning, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have for us. Would you help us to hear your truth? Would you lead us into knowing you better, and not just knowing you for knowledge's sake, but knowing you so that we can be changed from encountering you and the life that you offer? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this fall, I had to go to downtown Toronto for an appointment. I realized that I would be really near where my friend and my mentor, Jamie Jones, works, so I texted her to see if we could meet up. We met for lunch in a super busy food court downtown, somewhere underground in the basement of like this giant tower. But somehow, in the midst of all of this, our little table became sacred space. I hadn't connected with Jamie in months, and it was this sweet, precious gift of getting to sit down with someone who has known me for many years, who has spoken truth in my life, and who has pointed me to God again and again. Within minutes, we were deep in heart conversation, and we could have stayed there for hours. After Jamie had taken a way longer lunch break than she ever does, and the food court had emptied, our sweet time came to an end. So that's just a little bit like the part of Moses' story that we find ourselves in today. So our text for today takes place when Moses and the Israelites have escaped Egypt and they're camped out at the same mountain where the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Jethro, who's the beloved father-in-law of Moses, meets up with Moses here in the wilderness. And I should add that our scripture reading for today will be in two parts. So we're going to spend most of the morning on the second text, but this first passage sets up the context for Moses and Jethro's relationship. So we're going to listen together uh, from Exodus 18. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So just a quick recap of the story of Moses and the Exodus. Moses was born a Hebrew, an Israelite, but he grew up in Pharaoh's household. That's a great story for another time. Moses ran away from Egypt and was working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and the Lord said that he has heard the cries of his people and how they're being oppressed. And he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh and does miraculous signs, but Pharaoh continues to resist. Eventually, God brings ten plagues on the Egyptians, and finally the Israelites are allowed to leave. But no sooner have they left than once again Pharaoh changes his mind and sends an army after them. The Israelites are trapped, but God miraculously parts the waters of the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. But the Egyptians who are pursuing them are swallowed up. Once in the wilderness, the Lord provided them with water and with food, and he even helped them win a battle. Some of these amazing stories have reached Jethro's ears, and here he has come to see his son-in-law and to hear for himself. In this encounter, we get a glimpse of the closeness of their relationship. Jethro has been entrusted with Moses' family, his wife and two sons, while Moses has been away. You can see their care for one another as Moses runs out to meet him, and they ask after each other's welfare. Moses then tells Jethro all about how the Lord delivered them, and Jethro responds in worship, affirming all that Moses has told him about the Lord's provision. Then they celebrate with a meal in God's presence. And this leads us to where we'll focus our attention for the rest of today. So continuing on in Exodus 18. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple ones, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his, home, his own country. This passage is so rich for learning about leadership. For today, we're going to consider three critical principles about leadership that we find here. A Christian leader listens to God holds power rightly, and develops other disciples and leaders. So we begin with listen to God. 
So I say Christian leadership intentionally, as there is a fundamental distinction. A leader is anyone who is leading a group or organization. The mark and distinction of Christian leadership is that we are first and foremost followers. We are not leading by our own best judgment, like we're bushwhacking a path out in uncharted territory. Rather, Christian leaders are led. Christian leaders are followers and first and foremost led by God. A Christian leader leads others in following Jesus. And how can we lead others without knowing the way, without fixing our eyes on the one who leads us? Justin talked about this the first week in our leadership series with the story of Elijah and our need to listen to God. In Elijah's case, he needed solitude and silence to hear from God. And this is often true for us as leaders. And yes, it is us as leaders. Alex reminded us last week that if we are followers of Jesus, we are all leaders. Don't be intimidated by that. We're going to unpack what that means some more this morning. And last week, Nehemiah heard from God through the reading of God's word. As leaders, we also will hear God through the reading of his word. This seems like a timely moment to make it my own shameless plug for the Equip series, Hearing God's Voice, that starts next Sunday morning. We've been reminded that we are all leaders, and we've now said that the first mark of a Christian leader is to listen to God. So you are all invited to join us to learn how to do that better together. Starting next Sunday, see me to register. And now back to our regularly scheduled programs. <laughs> we hear from God in solitude. We hear from God in scripture. And this week, we're looking at another way of hearing from God, through the wisdom of others. As leaders, we need to pay attention to what God may be saying through our trusted mentors and wise friends. We need to have wise people in our lives like Jethro, who will help us hear the voice of God. Just last week for me, it took two wise people saying the same thing within a few hours to finally catch my attention. Jethro speaks these wise words, submitting his ideas before God. And this advice is invaluable and timely for Moses and the people of Israel. Which brings us to our second critical aspect of leadership. Holding power rightly. So being a wise friend, Jethro first observes and then asks. He notices what Moses is doing. He's not quick to come to a conclusion, but rather he asks Moses some questions. What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And pay attention to how Moses answers. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Did you hear the problem? Because the people come to me. They come to me. And I decide, and I make known to them. Moses has made his leadership all about him. He has become too important, too invaluable, too irreplaceable, and that is a dangerous place for a leader. And add to that the sheer exhaustion from hearing disputes all day, from morning to evening, day after day. And Moses is teetering in a precarious position. Jethro is clear that what he is doing is not sustainable. It's going to wreck him. But really important to note, it's not just going to wreck him. There will be serious consequences for the people he is leading. 
This is something we often overlook in leadership. And it's why Justin's message that leaders need to look after themselves is so important. We think our own sin or issues will only affect ourselves, but this is simply not true. One of the scary aspects of leadership is that the consequences are not limited to ourselves. If we are not in a good place, there will be consequences for the people we lead. What might some of those consequences be in this case? Well, a leader who's become too important in his own sight will lose care and compassion for the people he's leading. If Moses is overwhelmed and tired, he is likely not making the best judgments or offering true wisdom to people seeking his counsel. The consequences could be disastrous if he gives poor counsel to the people who are seeking him for help. Let's take a closer look at the first part of Jethro's response in order to better understand what the problem was. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. Represent the people before God and bring their cases before God, rather than they come to me and I decide. Jethro is repositioning Moses. Moses has moved into a place not rightfully his. He is encroaching on the place of God. God is the one who holds the knowledge of good and evil. Remember from Genesis, God is the one who ultimately knows good and evil, and we are meant to depend on him for that knowledge. Moses is way too zoomed in on the crisis at hand. And because he's so zoomed in, it's like he is taking up way too much space in the photo. What Jethro is doing here is zooming him way back and even changing to a wide-angle lens to remind Moses of his rightful place before God. You represent the people before God. Come before God on behalf of the people Bring your cases before God, and remember that you need God to help you. It's too much for you on your own. You are carrying a burden that is not yours to bear. Take your rightful position and space. He also says to him, teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. Moses had said, I make known to them. Moses is holding all of the cards. Jethro is saying, don't keep all that knowledge for yourself. Teach them. Teach them the heart of God, how they are to live, how they are to treat each other, and how to relate to God. Help them to know. Develop character in them and a culture of integrity. You might call this a proactive approach. Help them to know how to live, and presumably you will have less of them at your doorstep needing disputes to be resolved. All of this leads me to wonder, how did Moses end up here? Why did he do this? I don't think Moses was some super arrogant, power-hungry leader. Check out Exodus 3, and you will see anything but. In Exodus 3, he's timid and afraid, and he tells God he doesn't speak very well. So how do we get from that person to the one that we see here? And though we don't know for sure, I have a couple suspicions. One is that leadership can be intense. You get in the middle of something, and for Moses and the Israelite, you are literally trying to survive, and you naturally get zoomed in. You understandably are seeing the whirlwind around you, and it's hard to pause and think, is what I'm doing good? That's why we need Jethro's. 
But I have another suspicion that might be working alongside that one. We just mentioned Moses' insecurity in Exodus 3. And far from being opposites, insecurity and pride are actually two sides of the same coin. Whenever you see one pop up, you can bet that that person struggles with the other as well. It's like you press one down and the other one pops up, pride and insecurity. I think there is something that, whether he realizes it or not, Moses has come to like about being important, about being needed, being the expert, the one that's sought after. It's such a contrast to his earlier experiences. It's likely providing him with some sense of identity. It gives him a sense of who he is and what he's good at, what he's known for. These are not bad things in and of themselves. But when we are overwhelmed, it's often a clue that we have become too big in our own eyes. It's likely a key that something is out of order and our role is feeding something for us, some sense of identity and purpose that's not actually healthy for us. And remember, it's not healthy for the ones we are leading either. We have lost our appropriate view of God and ourselves. Now, all these things are probably scaring us off from leading even more than we already are. We are so aware of examples of the way that power corrupts. They are not hard to find. We actually live in a culture that resists the appearance of power. And I say the appearance of power because power is present regardless. One anthropologist has distinguished between high-power distance cultures and low-power distance cultures. And Charles Tidwell explains, in high-power distance societies, powerful people try to look as powerful as possible. But in low-power distance societies, powerful people try to look less powerful than they are. It may be that when I say we need to hold our power rightly, that some of us think, great, I can skip that one. I don't really have any power or any ambitions to be powerful. But you're not off the hook. We can succumb to the opposite problem. And rather than trying to grasp for power, we can either avoid it or be ignorant to the power that we actually have. One small example, I find I often choose to use the term disciple instead of leader because I'm concerned that if I say leader, you will all say, oh, no, that's not me. But if I say disciple, well, it's a little harder for you to get out of that one. It's okay to be a leader. It's good to be a leader. You are a leader. Own it. Okay, don't mind me. Step off my soapbox for a moment. (laughs) Where was I? Um, We can be allergic to the smell of power and quick to diminish it. But power is a gift and not something to be avoided. In fact, Andy Crouch argues that true power is for the flourishing of others. He says this, Power is not given to benefit those who hold it. It is given for the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and the cosmos itself. Power is not the opposite of servanthood. Rather, servanthood, ensuring the flourishing of others, is the very purpose of power. As followers of Jesus, we need to hold our power rightly. We neither cling to it or avoid it. And with our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be in our right place before God and can step out in the authority he gives us. So let's review. Remember, Moses needed Jethro to tell him, what you are doing is not good. 
He called him to return to his right position before God, to see himself and his authorities. He stands before God representing the people. And finally, power is to be used for the flourishing of others. And that is where we go next. So the third mark, Christian leaders develop other disciples and leaders. And there's two distinct and yet aspects of developing other disciples that Jethro shares with Moses. One is related to helping develop character in others, and one is about entrusting responsibility to other leaders. We're going to begin with developing character, but first we're going to talk about family resemblance. I love being an aunt, and I'm very fond of all my nieces and nephews, especially Logan and Addie if you're listening in the nursery, but I have this soft spot for my brother's son, Jacob. Here he is. Okay, aside from him being, in my totally biased opinion, completely adorable, I think one of the things that draws me to him is that he totally reminds me of my younger brother as a kid. I'll let you be the judge. (laughs) So there's my brother on the left and Jacob on the right. Family resemblance is a really strange thing. For some reason, we love to look at new babies and tell them, you look just like your dad or you're the spitting image of your mom. When people say, I look just like my dad, I think, thank you, a 70-year-old balding man? (laughs) (laughs) I love my dad, and I don't really mind. The family resemblance is about more than looks. I have an aunt and an uncle and two cousins who live in Colombia, and I don't get to see them very often. And a few years ago, I was talking with my uncle, my uncle Jorge, and he could hardly talk to me. He kept staring at me and laughing, saying, you are just like Daniela, his daughter. Beyond looking apparently similar, many of our mannerisms and expressions were really similar, which is kind of strange considering how little time we've actually spent together. I think we are somehow wired to look for these connections. But the family resemblance we're talking about today goes way beyond genes, looks, and mannerisms. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where I worked for 11 years, has a very strong discipleship culture. Sometimes it's so strong that you can meet a student leader and know who their campus minister is by the way they talk. When I first met Fiona, I definitely knew that Dana and Andrew were mentoring her. But it wasn't long before I met Kristen and could tell, oh, he's being discipled by Fiona. This isn't a bad thing. It's delightful. You could say the same for me. If you know me pretty well and you were to sit down for coffee with Jamie, who I mentioned earlier, it would probably feel quite familiar. Or if you met my friend Daniel, you might recognize things I've said about art and community. And if you were in a Bible study with my friend Allison, you might see where some of my teaching comes from. This is because these faithful people, Jamie, Daniel, and Allison, to name a few, entrusted me with what they had received, and in turn, I tried to pass on those same things to others. For instance, our community Bible studies are 100% me passing on what has been entrusted to me. That is a way of studying scripture in community that I have been gifted with that I try to pass on. In each of these examples, it happened over a long period of time with lots of hanging out. You don't start sounding like one another quickly. It takes time. And sounding alike is not the point. The point is not that it's just catchphrases or mannerisms that get passed along, but values, skills, ways of understanding God, ways to pray, 
understanding our world. And hopefully what these faithful friends are doing is actually helping us to be familiar with the heart of God himself. If they are drawing near God themselves, then in bearing resemblance to them, we actually bear resemblance to God's character too. That's kingdom family resemblance. Helping each other resemble Jesus. This is also known as leadership. Leadership doesn't need to be some huge thing on stage in front of hundreds of people. It's as simple as taking what you know, spending time with others to pass on what you have been entrusted with. Paul said as much to his mentee, Timothy, or as he more affectionately called him, my beloved child. Paul passed on what he knew to Timothy, and he tells him to go and do likewise. What you have heard from me through many witnesses entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. That's it. That's leadership. What has been entrusted to you entrust to other faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. You see how it continues on? Robert Coleman, in his classic book, Master Plan of Evangelism, tells us that this, just what I've described here, is actually Jesus' master plan for reaching the whole world. His plan He says, to reach the whole world is to spend most of his time with a few people. Here it is in Coleman's own 1960s language. Women, please realize this includes us every bit as much. His Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Men or people were to be his method of winning the world to God. He also says, Jesus devoted most of his remaining life on earth to these few disciples, and he literally staked his whole ministry on them. Whether it's considering eldership or leading within our community or being a leader in your workplace or school or wherever you have influence, this is the call. To look for faithful people and then entrust to them all that you have received you're not actually expected to pass on more than what you've received. You might call them to more, but how can you pass on what you have not received? So consider, what have you learned about God? About faith? About suffering? About perseverance? About the way to live and making decisions? And pass those things on. Along with passing on all that you have been entrusted with to next next leaders, there's a key step that often gets overlooked. As leaders are given responsibility, part of that responsibility needs to include them passing on to other new leaders. We need to help leaders to equip other leaders in such a way those leaders will continue to equip, and so on. It should be like this great line of dominoes knocking the next one down. That is, if we're considering knockdown dominoes, a good thing. Essentially, it's a chain reaction, or a tree, or a web that expands. A contagious movement that goes from one to the next. Okay, but how do we do this? Well, we start with selection. We prayerfully discern who to invest in. And Jethro and Paul give us some tips for this. Jethro says, look for able people, people who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain. And Paul says, faithful people, people who are able to teach. 
in InterVarsity, we like to sum this up by saying that we are looking for people who are fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. Apparently, we also love acronyms. (laughs) Faithful, available, and teachable. What Jethro, Paul, and dare I add, InterVarsity, are trying to say is that you look for people who have been faithful. That is, they have shown reliability over time and evidence of a growing relationship with God. They are people of integrity. They can be trusted. Secondly, they're available or able. They're not so preoccupied with other matters, so busy they have no room in their life. They are willing and they have some capacity for the task at hand. And they're teachable, meaning they don't have to be amazing leaders with everything figured out already. We need only look at the witness of scripture to know that is far from the truth. Moses and Jesus' chosen disciples, to name a few. But there needs to be a willingness to learn. A heart that realizes there is more to receive. And a humility to submit to being taught. So we find people who are faithful, available, and teachable. And then we spend a lot of time with them. We pass on all we have been entrusted with and appoint them as leaders over their own areas of responsibility. And this plan for how the multitude will be cared for. Whether it's in our church, or the city, or reaching the whole world. If you would like a manual on how to do this, I have good news for you. The master plan of evangelism is excellent. And if you're looking for a model of how to do it, it's Jesus. So there you go. You've got a manual and a model. As you're considering nominating elders for our election, let's keep these things in mind and consider people who are faithful, available, and teachable. And if you yourself are considering leadership, know that the qualifications are way more about your faith than finesse, about your heart than your skills, and about willingness rather than aptitude. Here at Courtright, we're working to have more of a culture where we are passing on to one another and receiving from one another. The fancy word for that is mentorship. But quit thinking I don't have anything to offer as a mentor because it's not anything different from what I've just described. I'm working to develop a bit more of a framework and some tools to help us with this. And if you'd like to be part of this, if you would consider being a mentor, or if you're someone who would like to have a mentor, please speak with me, because I would love to have you in mind as we continue to develop a way of doing this better. We all need a mentor, someone like Jethro, who's speaking truth into our lives, who can tell us when what we are doing is not good, who can help us get back in the right position before God. And along with a mentor, I think we're all called to have others that we are investing in. Someone to whom we are passing on the things we have received. Remember that definition of power? Power is about the flourishing of others. If you have received something, an education, a loving relationship, knowledge about God, a relationship with God, then you have some power. And true power is about passing on what we have been entrusted with. Jesus, unlike Moses, was the ultimate example of a true leader. He did not hoard his power, but rather his strength was in laying his power down for the flourishing of God's people. The gospel accounts consistently show how he listened to God. He was always attentive to his father's voice. He knew his right place before God and held his power rightly, not grasping and not denying. 
And Jesus developed leaders by spending lots of time with the disciples. And then he sends them out to do the very things he's been doing. While he was on earth, Jesus was empowering the disciples for this ministry. But he says in John chapter 16 to his disciples that it's actually going to be better for them when he goes because then the Holy Spirit will be there. Then they will always have his presence with them and not just when they're standing there with him. So God empowers the disciples and then promises they will do even greater things with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that same empowerment continues with us. Because the disciples were faithful with what they were entrusted with. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for those who have loved us and poured into us and invested in us. We thank you for the gift that that is. And I pray that you would help us to see that for what it is. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, gently but uh, graciously and strongly call us forth into what it means to uh, step into our right role as leader more fully. Would you bring to mind maybe particular people or situations where you are inviting us to take a step of leading out, to entrust with others in our midst the things that you have given to us and entrusted us with? And we do ask, Lord, that in so doing, we would become more like you. And that those we are leading would come to know you and be more like you as well. And we pray that we would be marked as a community by this. And God, we want to put our trust in what you say, that you will do even more than we can ask or imagine with this. And so we entrust ourselves to you in all of this. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite Brian Watson up. Um, this is a joy for us. Brian is going to share a little bit about his experience of choosing to step into leadership here as one of the elders at Courtright. Sitting there listening to that message and going, oh my goodness, do I want to stand up after that? <laughs> anyway, good morning. Um, as Alison mentioned, I'm Brian Watson. I've been going to Courtright since 1989. I know for some of you, you weren't even born then. Um, anyway, I met my wife, Helena, here, and we have raised our three children at KPC. I love Jesus, and I love this church. I love this place, this local expression of Jesus' kingdom. When Norm Beer asked me if I would consider becoming an elder at Courtright, I told him I could probably come up with a number of reasons why I would say no to becoming an elder at Courtright. I did tell him that I would pray and see if God had something else in mind. As I prayed over the next week, it seemed like God did have something else in mind. My sense was that it was time for me to get more involved in the leadership at Courtright instead of sitting back and seeing things that I thought could perhaps be done differently. I have been to a number of session-related events and meetings and have never regretted listening to God's leading and saying yes to becoming an elder. Our session is a great bunch of people that love Jesus and love Courtright. We laugh together, pray together, share vulnerable parts of our lives together, enjoy treats at our meetings, and try to discern God's leading for KPC. We don't take that responsibility lightly. Please pray for session and Alex as we humbly discern 
God's leading of this congregation. Thank you.